Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. Philip Yancey usually starts his writing with a good question. The author of more than 20 books has tackled really tough subjects like Where is God When It Hurts? and Disappointment with God, among many others. With his latest book, Where the Light Fell, he's tackling what might be the toughest thing yet, his own childhood, in a very strict and difficult fundamentalist family. Philip Yancey believes some of the answers he found can help the church today. I'm Karen Stiller, and I have to say, as a writer and a reader, I really loved talking to Philip Yancey. I hope you enjoy this conversation too. So Philip, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. Glad to be with you. On the back of your wonderful book, Where the Light Fell, there's this quote from you. I truly believe this is the one book I was put on earth to write. So many of the strands from my childhood, racial hostility, political division, culture wars, have resurfaced in modern form. Looking back points me forward. So I would love for you to tell us why you feel Where the Light Fell is a book for today, both for you and maybe for the church. As I wrote the book, I felt like I was putting together a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle without any picture to guide me on the cover. <laughs> and that's what a memoir does. You put together different parts of your life, and then ultimately a picture emerges, and there were surprises for me. I happened to grow up in a very unhealthy family and unhealthy church. It was one of these narrow, legalistic, uh, racist churches that we had in the South. The civil rights movement was just getting underway in the 1960s. And my church was on the wrong side of almost any social issue going on in the 1960s. And I, because of that, I went through a period of time where I rejected my faith, really, and have gradually over the years worked out my own faith. We, we tend to do that. You know, at first we accept what our parents say and what the adults around us say, and then later we realize there are some things in which they're wrong, and we kind of work it out for ourselves. I thought I had done that, and I thought that the barriers that faced me in childhood were lesser. And then suddenly, in the United States at least, we had this uh, movement where, where the church, many parts of the church, became closely allied with politics, and it seemed to be more interested in trying to clean up society around us than in trying to be an alternative, uh, a subculture that shows people what God had in mind with the human race, how we should live. So some of these issues, the legalism, the judgmentalism, the racism, the divisions that I experienced in childhood and thought were behind me are back in spades, at least in the United States right now. I thought I was deeping, dipping way back into the past to uncover what I had gone through. And actually I found the same things as the quote, quote says, the same things in different form right now going on in our country. So many people, I think, who were raised in the kind of fundamentalism you were by, I'm going to say it, the kind of mother you had or the, the a mother who lived it out in a certain way, which readers will discover, would have walked away and your brother did. So how do you make sense of your staying and the fact that you not only stayed in the church, but you've served it in such a profound way, writing more than 
20 books. And and I'm guessing in your answer, we'll also get a little uh, insight into maybe what the church can be today in this broken space we're in. So how did you stay and why did you stay? You mentioned my brother and my brother did give me an image of what the alternative could look like. We grew up in a church with lots of rules, with this image of God as this scowling policeman just waiting to break somebody, to smash them. That, that was the image of God we grew up with. And my brother rebelled against that and went through different direction. This was the 1960s. Everything was up in the air, so he wanted to be free. He dropped out of college his very last semester. He should have been a concert pianist, but he became a piano tuner instead. He started using LSD, became one of Atlanta's original hippies and had several bouts with suicide, moved to California, went through a number of female relationships. And I, I saw that freedom, untrammeled freedom, is, is not a good option. He became addicted to so many things that were destructive to him. So I didn't want to go that direction. And then I, I happened to be blessed, truly blessed, with some wonderful people. My very first job was at Campus Life magazine. It was a teenage magazine run by Youth for Christ. And the editors there were kind and gentle and open. And they let me get away with all sorts of things I probably should not have gotten away with. But they were grace-filled people. And then I found a church in Chicago that was just an ideal church. It was right in the inner city. And it brought together the richest part of Chicago, the richest zip code, and the poorest part of Chicago. And the resources from one helped out with the needs of the other. And it was, again, a grace-filled church so that when we faced difficult issues theologically or socially, we didn't divide. We worked them through and came up with some sort of compromise. I also, for about a 10-year period as I started writing books, was working with Dr. Paul Brand, first book I wrote was Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, and then we wrote two others, who was a saintly man. We couldn't have been more different. I was a, a young punk with wild hair out in, in a big Afro style. And he was a, a British surgeon, very distinguished, silver-haired surgeon who had spent his life mostly in India. He was the most brilliant man I've ever been around. Orthopedic surgeon, he was offered the head of orthopedics at uh, Oxford and at Stanford University. So he had, he had that caliber. But he, he spent his life among the lowest people on the planet. Um, I can't imagine anybody lower than people in those days called the untouchable caste who had leprosy. They were kicked out of their homes. They were kicked out of their, out of their villages. And here was this brilliant man who was theologically trained, who in a sense gave his life away for these people. But in the process, he found his life as Jesus promised. And during that period, that 10-year period, I probably should not have been writing about my own faith because it was still in flux. I was still trying to figure it out. I was in recovery from fundamentalism and I didn't know where I would land. And Dr. Brand was a, an ideal mentor. More than that, he was truly a father figure. My own father died when I was a year old. And that was a gift. It was a, a gracious gift from God, I think. Uh, God knew the situation I had grown out of. And and I, I imagine God thinking, okay, Philip, you've seen some of the worst. Let me show you some of the best. And it really only takes one person to truly demonstrate the life that Jesus brought us to experience. 
to think, oh, so that's what it's about. So that's where I find joy and happiness and meaning and fulfillment, not in these other ways that the consumer culture around me tells me I will. You mentioned that you were recovering from fundamentalism, basically. And to, in today's church culture, there are a lot of people who are kind of out loud recovering from evangelicalism, I think. We hear about ex-evangelicals and deconstruction of faith. I'm wondering what advice you have for people who are wrestling with faith, who are trying to figure out what is cultural and what is biblical, which it seems to me is part of the journey that you had to walk through. When you study people, well, read people like um, David Kinnaman, for example, this pollster and, and uh, George Barna, they survey some of these ex-evangelicals and say, what turns you off? What, what, made you want to leave this movement because you were part of it as a, as a young person. And the list includes such things as anti-science. And frankly, you know, I'm just baffled by the ferocity of the anti-vaccine, anti-masking movement, primarily among evangelicals. They're one of the groups that are most susceptible to that group. And my goodness, my father died of polio thousands of people a year were dying of polio. And the vaccine, even though there were a few people early on who had bad side effects, the vaccine saved hundreds of thousands of lives, millions across the world. So I'm very pro-vaccine. I was first in line. And that's just one thing, uh, anti-gay rhetoric that comes out of the evangelical church sometimes. Uh, it's not not so much what is your position on the issue, it's more how do you treat the people that are different than you are. And another issue is um, the connection with politics. I think the, the church in the United States would be making a serious mistake if they go down the path that Europe showed us, that the closer the church gets to the corridors of power, eventually the society throws off both. So you go to a place like Spain, and they'll have nothing to do with the church because the church was for years allied very closely with the dictator, Francisco Franco. I see that all over Europe. So th those are the kinds of things that young people struggle with. And I guess I, I would just have to say, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I found a slogan under a bottle cap of all places one time that said, an idea cannot be held responsible for the people who believe it. And the church has made a lot of mistakes throughout history. In fact, everybody has. Politicians have. Artists have. We're flawed human beings. And I would encourage people, don't let some of the parts of the church you don't like, don't let them interfere with the greatest gift we have, restoring a relationship with the God of the universe who loves us. That's the goal. And if the church gets in the way of that goal, then, okay, find another church or, you know, <laughs> go directly to God. We're allowed to do that. That's okay. But don't throw the practice of your faith away because of people around you who get it wrong. We all go through a period, Richard Rohr talks about order, disorder, reorder. And that was certainly true in my life. When you're young, the order is given to you by the people around you and you just believe what they say. Later, you find out on some things they were deeply wrong. And then later you put it together for yourself. 
And I, I do have hope that a lot of those ex-evangelicals who are still wistful about experiences they had in the church will come to that reorder stage when they sift for themselves what's worth keeping and, and what you should jettison. Yeah. And your relationship with Dr. Brand that you mentioned strikes me as a model, you know, from the other side of this question as to how we could walk alongside someone who was deconstructing or feeling very hurt from mistakes the church has made. Stronger Christians can do that. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It really does only take one person. In my early days with Dr. Brand, my faith was in suspension. He died in the year 2003, and I remember uh, speaking at his funeral, and I said, looking back on our relationship, we had a we had a fair exchange. I put words to his faith. He had these great experiences, these great ideas, and had never written them, but I, I put them down in words. And at the same time, he gave he gave faith to my words, because I would not have trusted myself trying to air out where I was in public at the time. It was still taking shape, but I could with great integrity write about and write with Dr. Paul Brand because I had, I had seen him and followed him around and interviewed other people. I knew he was, the, he was the real thing. He was genuine. And again, it only takes one person like that to, to make you realize there's something genuine here that I want. And I started looking for the people who I wanted to be like, you know, starting out as a young journalist I thought, oh, I should be an investigative reporter and expose these bad people. <laughs> and a lot of people starting out in journalism do that. I, I didn't like that because you have to be around these jerks all the time. <laughs> I decided I'm going to spend my time around people I want to learn from and I want to be like. Yeah, that's great advice. Philip, your mother was part of this uh, type of a holiness tradition that was about not sinning. And you reference in the book times where she'd say, you know, give a time frame. I haven't sinned for two months or something like that. Well, she'd say 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, even, wow. That's very impressive. <laughs> so I wondered um, how you define now in your life holiness and what does a holy life look like? Hmm. It's a great question. Two characteristics that I would, uh, bring to mind right away are humility and gratitude. Humility. I think one of the problems with that, that kind of holiness tradition is that it becomes, it becomes a spiritual competition where you, you want to be uh, more holy. So somebody has a quiet time for 30 minutes. You want to have an hour, you know, somebody uh, does drinks wine and you're not going to do that. You know, we, we do these things and, whole denominations are based on these little, I'm better than you are. I'm holier than thou. <laughs> but actually, we all know that the real standard is not each other. The real standard is God. And none of us are, are as holy as God. And we're, we're less holy than God. So I would start with humility. I've learned so much from the recovery movement, where people are forced, just required to be honest. You, you, if you try to put one over on people in an AA meeting, they will catch you out in a second. They can smell a lie a mile away. And the, the, the first step is to come to terms with what you don't do right. And 
I think that's really important for Christians to know because we do have this history of being perceived as holier than thou, self-righteous, some of these words. Gratitude is another one. If you are connected with God, you live a constant in a constant state of gratitude for the planet where we live in, for life itself, for Jesus and what he represents, you know, all of these things. Authenticity, I think, is the key that I've been looking for all my life because I not only observed, I was part of faking it as a as a young person in the church. I learned the behavior, I learned to do that, give testimonies, pray, come across in a certain way. And if you do that long enough, you can't tell the difference between what's fake and what's real. And so I did suspend my faith, but then in, in the year since have sought, especially in my writing, to be honest and, and to be authentic in my faith. I think if you do that, you, you may not look holy, <laughs> but you'll look real. You know, we all are flawed. We all make mistakes. And instead of trying to cover them up, as Christians sometimes are tempted to do, we're, we have a way around them we're, or the way through them by being honest about them and repenting. And God's forgiveness is infinite. So let's just face it. We're just going to mess up, but there is a cure for it. I've always appreciated in your writing that you ask the tough questions, that you are not backing away from them. And you're probably asking what everyone else is asking on the inside. Did that take a particular kind of courage or did it just come naturally to you? You you, you were a curious person. You talk about that um, as a trait that you had as a young person, but it does take courage to do what you've done and with your writing. I speak to some writers who say, when I start, I picture a reader, you know, maybe a 42-year-old woman and her husband sitting in a, on a couch. And I think, what do I have to say to them? I've never done that, Karen. I, I really write out of my own quest. Because I do have this background that the book spells out, I have searched for an authentic faith. And once I came up with this analogy, it's kind of like hacking my way through a jungle. Say I'm in Costa Rica or somewhere, and I'm I'm hiking, making my way from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. And I go up down hills and I have a machete and I have to cut my way through the jungle. And it's, it's arduous. And then suddenly I see light and a clearing and I, and I find the ocean. I've made it, my goal. And then I look behind me and to my surprise, there are people following me on the path saying, thank you so much for clearing the path. We wanted to come this way too. <laughs> but I'm not aware of those people when I'm writing. I'm aware of the jungle. Does prayer make any difference? Where is God when it hurts? Disappointment with God. You know, these kind of questions that are part of my life, and I want to find my way through. I want to find out answers for myself. And I consider it a great privilege that I can do that all day long. People who are church-type people think about God at least once a week, you know, maybe 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. But they have jobs. I have a, a, my job is to think about those questions all week long, <laughs> and, and that's kind of a privileged posi- position. And I try to be a steward of that. But I would do it anyway because I want to find my way through the jungle. Yeah, I love that. I know that a big part of writing and jungle 
trekking is reading. And I'm wondering um, who is or what books are sort of feeding you now? Where, where are you concentrating your reading these days? If I could get rid of emails, I would be so much better a reader. <laughs> yeah. Amen. It seems, it seems like all I do is answer emails. And of course, that's important. And it's great to be connected to people. But I frankly, I worry not just about myself, but about our whole society that we're, we're getting so used to these little snippets that deep reading that informed me for most of my career is just hard work now. We're so used to just dashing off a little one-line response. I tend to go toward those that uh, do spiritual nourishment. Henry Nowen, one of your Canadian residents for years, um, who I interviewed in in Toronto, actually. Henry Nowen is one who consistently makes me think and makes me feel and makes me pray, actually. (laughs) And Thomas Merton is another one. is it Ronald Rollheiser? Ronald Rollheiser is another one. People who, many of them happen to be Catholics because they sit around and think about God all day. You know, In Thomas Merton's case, he didn't even talk. He just uh, meditated and, and wrote. And so I've, I learned from them. And then, of course, I have to stay on top of certain current issues. And there have been a lot of books coming out lately on the church in the political climate in the United States, which is uh, a real concern for me. So I try to stay up on those. Seems like these days people would rather listen to a podcast than read a book. And I'm kind of leery of those. (laughs) I do listen to podcasts, but I think back to a time in my life when I would sit there and read three or four hours a night every, every weeknight. And now I mostly try to catch up on emails and I think there's a great loss there, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that's, uh, it's interesting what you say about podcasts because I was thinking that like a podcast captures a moment in time and a conversation like we're having, but, you know, we're kind of on our, flying on our feet a little bit and it's not that deep thinking that you get from a book. It, It just can't be, I don't think. Yes, and it's forgettable. Mm-hmm. Um, I often will listen to podcasts when I'm exercising, and it's entertaining, and I need it. You know, it keeps me going, keeps me from thinking about the exercises. But um, very rarely do I come home and write up a note and put it in a database to reference later, which I used to do with every book I would read. Anything that struck me would end up in a database that would inform me when I wrote about something related to that topic later. But people will want to bookmark this podcast for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You have you use humor really well. Um, And uh, speaking to you now, I see that that's part of of who you are. But there's one line in the book that I I laughed out loud. Um, I can never figure out how to have a friendly conversation with someone when my main point is that they are going to hell. And this was from your (laughs) college days. Um, I just thought. It was just a funny, refreshing, again, honest line. But it made me wonder what a winsome, appealing faith looks like in today's world. How should we be as the church in this climate? I came away with the image of God that that you kind of alluded to there in that quotation, that God was this scowling person that wants to torture people. 
super person who wants to torture people. And my image of God now, I would say, is more like the great physician. Uh, Jesus, of course, had that title, the great physician. And I started thinking about that when uh, I had a, I had some surgery on my foot. And I had a big event coming up that summer. Some friends that I had known forever, I had known forever, were coming out to Colorado. And I wanted to play golf with my friends. And unfortunately, my surgery was just about five or six weeks before that event. So I went to my doctor and said, um, I've got this golf event. Is it okay if I play golf? And he looked at me and said, it would make me very unhappy if you played golf <laughs> on your foot. And my first response was, well, I don't care if you're happy or not. You know, <laughs> I'm not... But then I started thinking, why would he be unhappy? He would be unhappy because his ultimate concern is my health. He wanted me to be able to play golf 10 years from now, not just six weeks from now. And I started thinking, that's, I think that's how God sees us. There are certain things we know that the Bible says God disapproves of. He disapproves of uh, breaking relationships, like in divorce. He disapproves of dishonesty. He disapproves of, of um, crass materialism, greed, uh, all of these things. I mean, go back to the Ten Commandments. But these things weren't, they weren't given to spoil our lives. They were given to give us the best life possible. And somehow I never got that from the church growing up. It was just, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. And when Jesus came, he said, I came to give you life to the fullness, abundant life. He said, I came to set you free. And when you're free, you're, you're free indeed. And, and I look back on some of the narrow churches I experienced in childhood, and they didn't set me free and the people didn't look like they had an abundant life. They looked like shrunken people, not expanded people. And I think that's where the church can go wrong and did, and did go wrong in, in my own background. And so a, a, a person who is connected with Jesus is a person who just has a lot more time for you, who automatically wants to be there when you're going through a hard time and wants to be there when you're going through a good time just a, a companion that shows you what life is, not in a self-destructive way, but in a healthful way. Something like that. I, I don't want to give a formula for what people for look like, but I want to correct the wrong impression that I had growing up. One thing, um, as a writer, I picked up your book with great anticipation of reading behind the scenes, you know, talks about your first book and how you connect with this and what happened then and so on. And then I quickly realized this, this is in many ways a childhood memoir because your childhood was so formative and it got me thinking about all of our childhoods and how we do spend a fair bit of our adult life sorting through some things, most of us, and some of us have far more to sort through probably than others. And that would be certainly true of, in your case. But I just wondered if you could speak to the work that we have to do and and as Christians, how that impacts it in kind of recovering and moving on from our childhoods. Actually, the first couple of drafts of the book, I did go beyond in time and started talking about my career, why I wrote this book, why I wrote that book. And then I realized 
that kind of limits the interest. I, I want to reach people who really haven't read any of my books. For those who have, it serves as a kind of prequel. It gives some understanding and insight into why I did write my books. But, but for someone who hasn't read anything by me, I want to speak to that broader audience, the people who, who did have a church experience and turned away. I, I've spoken to so many of those people and they'll tell me their story and I just kind of smile and say, oh, it, it's a lot worse than that. Let me tell you my story. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I have a kind of cred with them because I don't immediately try to defend the church and propagandize. I just say, yeah, you're right. It can be a really messed up place. I frankly was surprised as I went back into my formative years, how deep some of those experiences were. Some people who've read the book say, I can't believe you remember all that stuff. But I do. I remember actual conversations. And I can see now why the person that I am was formed by those. And that's true. I didn't have sexual abuse in my background, but I, I know many people who do. And it's easy just to to look at them and say, come on, get over that. You were a six-year-old child. No, it, these things lacerate the soul of young people. You, you know that. And my wife was worried because when I started going back and writing about these very tough scenes, she thought I'd come back a basket case. And I didn't. I, I found it very healthy at my age to stitch together even the wounds, you know, first to open them up and to write about them. We have the promise that even bad things can be used, can be redeemed. That's the Christian promise. Even the worst thing that could happen, the death of the Son of God, who did nothing wrong, was turned into the salvation of the world. It's a day we've now called Good Friday. That's the emblem, the pattern that we have. We don't have a promise that only good things will happen to us, for sure. That we don't. But we do have the hint and the hope that no matter what happens, it can be used for good. And I have to say, looking back on my life, even though there were painful times, as I say at the end of the book, nothing went wasted. It was all used in part of, in part of God's story in me. And I pulled that up for other people that no matter what it is, it also can be used as part of God's story in you. Philip Yancey, thank you for writing Where the Light Fell, and thank you for speaking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.